All right. So we are in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 14 to chapter 5, verse 10. Uh, so Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 5, 10. It says this. <clears throat> Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the, to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for its challenge to us to, um, to cling to the cross and to cling to what Jesus has done and accomplished for us and to not, um, to not lose sight of that, that you have completed the work, that it is finished, that you have done it, and that all we have to do is place our faith in what you have accomplished God, to hold fast the confession that Jesus is Lord. He has defeated death in the grave, and we stand righteous in him. God, be with us as we look at this passage. May your Holy Spirit speak to us, speak to our hearts, and may this message resonate with us this week. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, um, after a strong encouragement to uh, to the the, the recipients of this letter, uh, the writer is returning to, uh, his strong encouragement to them was to enter God's provided rest, right? In the past couple weeks, we saw this writer say, you need to enter the rest that God has provided for you. You don't need to uh, go back and try and do your own plan and figure out your own way or reject flatly the plan that God has for you, but rather enter the rest that God has provided for you. Is it going to be easy? No, there are giants in the land, right? It is filled with obstacles. It is not easy. You're going to have to strive to hold fast to this and to enter this rest, but it is provided for you, and Christ has uh, brought you the victory. So that encouragement to him, he sort of stepped away from talking about the attributes of Jesus and how great he was and his superiority to 
all things, really, uh, angels, Moses, uh, the creation of the world is in his hands. Uh, he stepped away from that to stop and say, enter then the rest that is provided by this God. And now he jumps back into a, a, a little a mode of comparison for a good chunk of the next few chapters. So chapters five to eight, what we're talking about is the priesthood. Um, we're talking about the the high priesthood and Jesus' priesthood in comparison to the priesthood of the Levitical order or, or the Old Testament, basically. Um, this time we are seeing that, that Jesus is superior in his priesthood, in his priestly role to the role of the priests that have gone before him. So in chapters 5 to 8, uh, we see this role of the priesthood being displayed. And while we talk about the high priest a little bit today uh, and compare Jesus, uh, the high priest, to the high priest of the Old Testament, we're going to be hitting on this over and over again over the coming weeks. So I'm not going to dive into it entirely, just going to hit what we've got here, and we'll explore some more of these concepts as we go throughout the coming chapters. But what we should know is this, that the priest's role is this, to facilitate purity in worship of the living God. To facilitate, to facilitate purity of worship to the living God. All the sacrifices, all the, uh, the setup of the temple itself, um, all of the, uh, the anointing of, uh, of all the elements, all this is to provide a pure worship of the living God. What it does not do, none of the sacrificial system or the priestly order of the Levitical, Levitical priest, uh, their offerings and sacrifices do nothing to forgive your sin. They don't forgive sin at all. Uh, Hebrews 10 will point this out to us, Hebrews 10, 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. We get this concept that, that somehow uh, the sacrifice that is being made by the priest in the Old Testament is, is the action that forgives our sin, and that's not it at all. There, there is no sacrifice that forgives our sin. God only forgives our sin. We're reminded of this, or only God can forgive our sin. We're reminded of this in Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 20 to 21. I didn't mark it because... Um, Lazy. Uh, chapter 5, verses 20 to 21, uh, which says this, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus was brought this paralytic, he, he didn't say to him, rise and walk initially. His initial statement to him was, brother, your sins are forgiven. I see your faith. Your sins are forgiven. And everyone looks around and like, what? You're supposed to be just healing him and letting him go on his way. Like, that's what we're all here to see is you do these things. And Jesus, you know, turns the script on him and says, your sins are forgiven. And they say, only God can forgive sins. okay. You want to know that I have the power to forgive sins? Get up and walk, this man. Get up and walk, and he does. <clears throat> you see, the, the sacrificial system wasn't set up to forgive sins. It was to display the holiness of God 
and provide a, a pure and holy worship of the living God, knowing that that living God is the God who saves us. Nothing that we do by sacrifice is going to do anything to save us. It is God himself who has saved us. And in our approach to him, we, we must be holy and we must be pure. And that's why the Levitical priesthood was set up, to, to provide a pure worship of our God. So that's the priestly role. And as we go through the coming chapters, we're going to see the comparison of two orders of priests. Uh, the order of Aaron, that is the Levitical priesthood, and the order of Melchizedek. And there are some differences that we'll compare as we go through that. Um, and it's always, a, this is a very challenging uh, passage or, or section of scripture as we talk about a, a priest who's very rarely mentioned, but is directly connected to Jesus in his role as a priest. So we'll get into that more and more uh, as we go along in, in the coming chapters, uh, but not, not yet today. That's a preview of things to come. Um, today, what we see is in Jesus' high priest role, <clears throat> we see that Jesus is as we are, that he is as we are, that Jesus, though, though holder of the universe, though creator of all things, sustainer of all things, though greater than angels and greater than Moses and greater than all these things, he came as a man. He came as and walked this earth as a man, just as we are. And so as we go through this passage, we'll see him compared to uh, a manly high priest. As Jesus is a priest, he's going to be compared to the priest's role for the people. This concept is uh, difficult. I mean, it's basically the the concept of Jesus being both 100% man and 100% God. Our brains don't really compute this. It's not something that we can really reconcile logically. Uh, in fact, I was thinking about doing an illustration, but I'm not going to do it. It's going to be too complicated to make a mess. Um, but basically, think of it this way, right? You've got a full cup of water, right? Take another cup of water. What's going to happen when you pour that cup of water in there? It's all going to spill out, right? It's exactly how our minds compute 100% plus 100%. You can't put more into a 100% full cup. It's going to spill all over the place, right? That's what we're saying about Jesus, that here's 100% God. We're going to pour 100% man into that being. He's 100% man, 100% God. We can't reconcile it. We can only attest to it in the scripture that Jesus came, that he interacted with us just as we all interact with one another in physical touch, in bodily touch. And yet he plainly claims throughout his, his uh, ministry, that he is more than just man, that he is God, that he is able to forgive sin, that he's going to rise from the dead. Okay, these are things that humans don't just say unless they're crazy people, okay? <laughs> and so either Jesus is telling the truth or he's a crazy person. We believe he's telling the truth. Some people believe he's crazy. Some people choose that middle road and say he's just a good guy. It's untenable, actually. You can't walk that middle road and say, oh, he's just a good guy because he claims to be God. So he's either lying, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord, right? The old saying. So today we see in his high priest role that Jesus is as we are. So the question is, uh, what do we see in this passage about who the high priest is in the first place? So we're going to look first at verses 1 to 4 to see the high priestly role. 
Again, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5 say this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. First thing about the high priest, does he earn the role? Does he submit his resume and apply for it? He's appointed, right? He is appointed both, uh, both by his heritage. He has to be of the uh, descendant of Levi and of Aaron specifically for this role. Um, and he has to be chosen and appointed to fulfill that role. So he's, he's chosen first. Second, we see that why, why is he chosen? He's chosen and appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for their sins. Second thing is, he deals with the sins of the people, right? His dealings and his purpose, his reason for doing his job is to acknowledge the fact that we, and myself included, this priest is saying, uh, are sinners. We're, we're broken and we're trying to worship a living God. And the only way we can do that is to separate ourselves somehow through sacrifice and, uh, and, and, this, and this worship that God has given us to do to make ourselves pure before the living God. And that's his role is to, to say, okay, we are sinners. How do we approach the living God? How do we come before him clean and worship him purely? we got to offer these sacrifices, and we got to go through this cleansing process. And there's certain things we can't touch, and there's certain things we can't be around, and there's certain time limits on life experience that, that negate us from normal worship. So he deals with that. He deals with the sin of the people. He makes sacrifice for the purity of his, uh, the individual and corporate worship. Finally, he feels the effects of sin personally. He doesn't just deal with the sin of the people. He feels it himself. Verses 2 to 3 say, uh, say this. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the sins of the people. The high priest is not some uh, special, set-apart, completely holy person. He's a sinner. He's broken, just like everybody is serving. Is he regarded highly by the rest of the nation? Sure, he is, but he's also broken and feels the effects of his sin. To be honest, uh, this is a week in which I feel beset with weakness. <laughs> uh, a long week of work, a lot of stuff going on feel like there was not enough hours in the day, feel like concentrated on too many things, got distracted by too many things, namely Oklahoma State football yesterday. Um, I feel beset with weakness. I feel unfit for, uh, for the, the, the role and task that is before us. I feel beset with weakness. And the only reason that that, that besetting weakness of the high priest and, and of myself at many times doesn't overtake the role is that we're called. We're called to a position. And if God has called you to do something, he has also provided you the means in which to do that, regardless of how your emotions are wavering in your identity. If he's called you to it, he's provided for you. And yet because of this tension that that the high priest felt that that he too was beset with weakness and and not fit for the position, he was able to deal 
what does it say? Deal gently with the wayward and deal gently with the ignorant. So when he's providing sacrifice for, you know, so-and-so who knew they screwed up and came and screwed up again and, you know, is he chastising him? No. He's recognizing that here this person has come in repentance to offer a sacrifice. Yeah, is he wayward? Yes. But you know what? Once I was too. And for the ignorant, he, he says, here's this person stumbling and bumbling up onto the temple mount and not doing the right things, probably making things unclean in the way that, but do they know? No, they're ignorant. He says, it's okay. Okay, this is what we do. You know, you got to go here. And gently he deals with them. Why? Because he once was ignorant himself. He was once a child. He once did not know the way that things ought to operate. So he feels the effects of sin personally. He's chosen. He deals with the sins of the people, and he feels the effects of the sin personally. Okay, so that's a very just high-level view of the high priest's role, right? And again, we'll get a little deeper into uh, the high priest's role as we go along. But these are the three things that we see in this passage. He's chosen, he deals with sins of people, sins of the people, and he feels the effects personally. And what do we see about Jesus? What we see about Jesus is that he is greater. He's not just a high priest, he is the great high priest. It says it from the outset of our passage, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest. So how is Jesus greater than the normal high priest? How is he higher than than the highest, most holy individual representing the nation of Israel at any one point? How is he higher? How is he greater than that person? We see it lined out in this passage. First, we see that like the high priest, he is chosen. chosen, He's chosen in a number of ways. Verses 5 and 6 say this, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but rather was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's chosen. He's chosen for this role. God has appointed him to this role. This is the first place where we see that his priesthood is slightly different. He's appointed to the priesthood of Melchizedek. So his priesthood is different, and and we should assume that because it's saying that it's different and because that it's saying that he's greater, that this priesthood of Melchizedek is somehow greater than the high priesthood of Aaron. He's chosen. He's a chosen high priest. Second, we see just like the high priest, he deals with people's sin. Verse 9 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See, while, uh, while the high priest of the Old Testament, of the Levitical priesthood, offered sacrifice and, and offered worship unto the people of the living God, they never offered salvation in and of themselves. The priesthood of Melchizedek is standing forever. It is a permanent 
priesthood. And, and thus the sacrifice of this priesthood is also permanent. In verse 9 we see, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We'll see later as we study the priestly order of Melchizedek that he will become the source of eternal salvation to all who believe in him across all time. That is the sacrifice of Jesus is the saving act of God for all time. Present, future, past. Whole of creation. Salvation is found in Christ giving himself on the cross. So if you are a faithful one of the Old Testament, as we'll look at a, a, a whole hall of faith in chapter 11 of people who by faith followed God and put their trust in the living God, they were saved by Jesus' work on the cross. It's one sacrifice for all time, not just for the present and the future, but also for the past. Those who placed their faith in God as their Savior were placing their faith in Jesus who accomplished it at the cross. He deals with the sin of the people. He has become their eternal salvation. He has perfected his calling. He has completed it entirely and become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I'll point out my interpretation here of to all who obey him. Because you might think, well, what? Like, if we're obeying him, does that mean we're doing some works to, like, achieve obedience? Sort of. It goes back to the study that we did of the people of Israel when they come to the edge of the promised land. And there before them is the land that God has given them. God has given it into their land. What does obedience look like? It looks like having faith in the living God. What is the action that accompanies that obedience? Walking into Canaan and saying, this is the land that God has given me. You will not stand against the living God. And finally, for the generation that did enter, walking around the walls of Jericho seven times and bursting out trumpets and seeing the walls fall down before them, that is having faith in the living God. Was it doing something? Yes, it was walking in obedience. Did that action save them? No. What saved them was God. Did they bring out their swords and slay those in Jericho? No, they sung praises of God and the walls fell down and they ran in fear. It's not by works that we're saved, it's only by faith. A lot of times that faith comes with an action. It comes with a reality that follows that. We don't simply place our faith in Jesus and then do whatever the heck we want all day long. It's not how it works. And a lot of times, that's how we think it works. We say, you know what, Jesus is my Lord. He saved me from hell, and now I'm good. I can do whatever I want, and it doesn't matter. It's not what we're called to. If, if that's our perception of what salvation is, we have misunderstood the calling to follow Jesus. The calling to follow Jesus is to say, you are my Lord and my Savior. I will trust you and follow you wherever you lead me. Will it be hard? Yeah. There's going to be giants in the land, and I'm going to have to face them. 
But is the victory complete? Yes, it is. It was won at the cross. And whatever circumstance I face in following the Lord Jesus, it is accomplished and finished at the cross. He's the eternal source of salvation. He has dealt with our sin, has provided a way to follow him and follow him by faith. So he's chosen, he deals with sin, and he does these things in a greater manner than the high priest of the of uh, the Levitical priesthood does. And finally, he feels the effects of sin personally. In the same way that the priest does, he feels the effects of sin personally. There's a slight difference in his feeling of it, and we'll talk through that. Verses 14 to uh, 15, and verses chapter 5, verse 7 through 8. First, chapter 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Right? Jesus has, has come from heaven to earth. He is incarnated. He has come unto earth as a man. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin every respect. Did he sin and become beset with that weakness? No, he didn't. But did he endure temptation beyond any level of temptation that we have ever been to? Yes, he did. That concept has really hit me as I've been studying Hebrews this time around that like Jesus endured temptation further than any man has ever endured temptation. Because most of us come to temptation and as soon as temptation comes, we're like, oh, you fall off the bus, right? (laughs) We're so weak. We're, we get faced with a simple temptation and, you know, we take the cake <laughs> or whatever it is. But Jesus endured that temptation. And do you think it, like, his temptation stopped at the, at the desert when he was tempted by Satan? No, probably not. Every day of his life, he was faced with the same temptations that we were faced with. I mean, this man, when he started his ministry, was 30 years old and he was single. That's not easy. And we don't preach a lot about singleness in the church, but Jesus knows what singleness is about. He is the epitome of being a single person on earth. He has endured its effects and its realities to no end. He understands it completely, what it is to trust in only the one who you cannot see on this earth. That's what it's like to be, a lot of times, a single Christian. You don't have the helpmate with you to, to endure these hardships and to take care of these struggles and things. And Jesus understands that. He is tempted just like any other person. He's tempted with, uh, with fame and, and power and, uh, and, and miracles that, that should not have been his. That's what Satan brought before him. and said, hey, look at all these kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you if you just bow the knee to me. Satan literally says that to Jesus. Jesus says, no, even though I haven't had food for 40 days and now you're coming at me with this stuff, you know, I know where I'm called to be. He has faced the temptations that we face. Verses seven to eight drill this home for us. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Jesus displays full emotion 
in regard to the challenges of his calling. We think of him so often as, well, he's God, so he, yeah, he came to earth, but like he was still God just walking around like it's easy peasy, just, you know, going to do this thing, okay, got to go over here, got to make this appointment, whatever, whatever, got to heal this person. It's not what the passage says, right? It wasn't a walk in the park. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Tears of blood in, the, in Gethsemane. I mean, he is absolutely wrecked with emotion about what he's about to have to do. I mean, he knows more than anybody what he's going to endure. And he feels that I have to go to a cross and I'm going to be beat by rods and I'm going to be torn to shreds and someone's going to put a crown of thorns on my head. And he knows that that's ahead of him and that he's physically actually going to endure that. So does he feel the effects of sin? Yeah, he does. He feels the temptation that we feel and he feels the effects of people sinning against him time after time. He feels them personally. He's tempted in every way without sin. And he cries out to God with great emotion when being faithful wasn't easy. So Jesus is the great high priest. We, he's very similar to the high priest in that he's chosen, he deals with people's sins, and, and he feels the effects of sin personally. He is unlike that high priest in that he was chosen in a special way in the order of Melchizedek. He deals with the sin of people by a single eternal sacrifice that that actually forgives sin for all time for those who place their faith in him. And he feels the effects of sin in a way that nobody possibly ever could by being tempted all the days of his life by it and never giving in. I mean, could you imagine if I set you in a room, this would be like terribly difficult for me. But set you in a room, and the only thing in that room was a freezer. And guess what's in the freezer? It's chock full of mint chocolate chip ice cream. Right? Or whatever ice cream of your choice. Chocolate, vanilla, whatever. Whatever it is. For me, it'd be mint chocolate chip ice cream. Sit me in a room with a fridge full of mint chocolate chip ice cream and a spoon in a bowl and tell me, that is for the party tomorrow, so you can't have a bite. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> right? I mean, okay, and now, now just imagine that the party is 33 years from now. <laughs> okay? Yeah, it's going to be hard for me not to just get a nibble, maybe a carton, you know, <laughs> out of that freezer. I mean, all joking aside, though, that's what Jesus endured. 33 years of being tempted by every temptation possible from the reality of singleness to the significance of what he was going to do to the the opportunity to be in charge of the entire world before him. And he denies it his whole life, knowing that his end is actually to give himself on a cross to die for the people's sins. He feels the effect of sin personally. He was tempted to a measure that we cannot comprehend or understand, and yet without sin. 
All right, so what do we do with this fact? We know that, that Jesus is a greater high priest now, that he is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which we'll explore a little further later, but that his priesthood is greater than the priesthoods that have passed before him, that his priesthood brings forth salvation for all men, and that he feels and understands the effects of sin personally, that he walks our reality and knows it. Well, this is what we do. This whole book, the entirety of Hebrews, is asking this one question. I mean, you can imagine the recipients of this letter saying to the writer um, this question. Why should we hold fast our confidence in Jesus? Why should we continue to place our faith in Jesus when, when our brothers and sisters are being persecuted for their faith right around us? And if I continue to proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus, I too might be persecuted and put in prison for my faith in Jesus. Why should I hold fast my confession to Jesus? That's the question that we're being hit with and that's being answered throughout this whole book is that one single question. Why in the world would I continue to trust Jesus in this world? Why? And for these people, the reality was that because of their proclamation of faith, they potentially would be put in prison and potentially physically harmed as a result of their confession of faith. So they're facing some serious physical uh, and uh, legal ramifications for their belief. Maybe that's not our reality right now. But people do look around at us and say, uh, you guys think there's one way? Like, isn't there a million ways to God? Like, aren't there like three billion gods in India? Like, aren't there multiple major religions that, that lead to salvation? we'd say no. I'm sorry, but no. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way to the Father except through me. Jesus says that that my sacrifice on the cross paid for salvation for all mankind, all who would believe in him. It is the only way. People scoff at that. People think that's crazy. Why should I hold fast that confession that is so looked down upon in our world? Hebrews gives the answer throughout its pages. It it tells us what Christ's identity is, right? We started this Uh, journey out by seeing that Jesus is the prophetic voice of God. He's God's son, the heir of all things, creator of the universe, holder of the universe, glory of God's presence, revelation of his nature, that he's sovereign over the angels, that he's greater than Moses, that he's greater than the high priests of the Old Testament time, that his sacrifice is one that is uh, made for all time, that is permanent. It, It saves those behind and before and those in the current time. That one sacrifice is all that was needed. Why should we hold fast our confidence? Because Jesus has accomplished our salvation. He has become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him.
we should hold fast our confidence because he was chosen to do this. We should hold fast our confidence because he deals with our sin. He, he went to the cross, again, in, a, in an eternal uh, sacrificial work. He feels the effects personally. So to these that are receiving this letter, he's saying, I understand that you are about to be persecuted for your faith. And he can say that genuinely because he was hung on a cross for them. So the writer's saying to them, listen, I understand that this is difficult. And I understand that what is before you is a terrible challenge. But let me tell you, your Savior knows because your Savior endured the very same thing. Not in some flippant way as a deity, but as a man, he endured the same persecution, even greater than you might endure. He knows your pain. And to those of us who are sitting tempted by the world's pleasures around us, Jesus knows your pain. He knows your temptation. He's faced it personally. He was offered all the kingdoms of the earth. He understands what it is to endure that temptation and come forth standing on the word of God. Why should we hold fast our confession? Because Jesus has saved us in a way that no one else can. By coming and enduring the cross, scorning its shame, sitting down at the right hand of God the Father. So we end with these things and and go with these things this week. First, as Christians, we have become priests. We have become a holy priesthood is what what Scripture says of us, that we have been made holy and that we are now a holy priesthood. And we'll get into that as we continue talking about the priesthood throughout this. But you were made holy through Jesus. He has made you righteous. That is your identity. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are righteous before God. That's why in verse 16 it says, um, if I can find it, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. How can you draw confidently to the throne of grace? Not because the sacrifice of blood and bulls in the Old Testament, but because Jesus has paid your penalty on the cross. You, you today can go without any... uh, sort of purity sacrifice and stand before the living God. And we will do that corporately today as we pray. We'll stand before the throne of God in heaven and ask for his help in our time of need. You're, you are made holy. And so being one that has been made holy in that way, what are we to do? We are to deal gently with the wayward and the ignorant, right? Jesus and the high priest dealt gently with the wayward and the ignorant. We see this in Jesus. He, he was not untouchable to people. Rather, he was among those who, ha, who, who people had labeled untouchable. He was among tax collectors and drunkards, and he was actually called a tax collector and a drunkard. Okay, if Jesus was so associated with sinners that he was called a drunkard, maybe we should consider how we interact with our world and how we ought to be seen. He dealt gently with the wayward he dealt gently with the ignorant. He understood that they're in a place of desperation and they need someone to speak life into their circumstances. And so be careful about being religious and judgmental. Blake, everyone. But rather, deal gently 
with the wayward and the ignorant. Go with this. Jesus knows our pain, and he paid the penalty for our sin. So often we like to wallow in the fact of the difficulties of our life. But know this, your Savior knows your pain. He knows it. He's felt it fully. He knows your circumstance. He knows the situations that are before you and behind you. He knows them. He feels them deeply. We go with this, that Jesus paid our penalty. When you screw up this week, and it's a very good likelihood that all of us are going to do that, what you should not say to yourself is, I'm guilty and unworthy of God's presence. So often the first thought that comes into my mind when I sin is, I've screwed it up. I'm a failure. I've messed up again. How am I worthy of this? That is a lie from Satan. It is not true of you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus and you sin and you screw up, you go before the living God and say, Lord, I am sorry. Forgive me. And you know where you stand? Righteous before God. You are no longer guilty because Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. Do not let Satan um, deceive you into thinking that somehow your uh, continuing struggle with sin is hindering you from an eternal relationship with Jesus. Because when you've placed your faith in Jesus, it is paid for, done, finished. You are righteous in his sight. He has paid the penalty for our sin. Hold fast your confession of the great high priest, Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that when we feel inadequate, when we feel broken, when we feel guilty, when we feel unworthy, when we feel um, unqualified, when we feel weak, when we feel broken, you sympathize with our circumstance. Not in some distant uh, way because of your omniscience and, and your knowing of all things, but experientially, you understand what we feel. You struggled with it through blood-stained tears. You endured it physically and emotionally. And so when we feel that way, God, let us cast that down at the foot of the cross and speak over ourselves the truth that we are righteous and that we can boldly approach the throne of God with confidence. We don't have to creep up there acting woe as me. We can boldly go before you 
because of Jesus, not because of anything we've done, but because of what you have done for us on the cross, we can go before your throne. Thank you, God. Thank you that you became as we are. Thank you that you paid the penalty for our sin. Thank you that you deal with us gently, though we be wayward and ignorant. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.